0: all aboard the history express my name is donnie hazel and i am your host to all my original listeners welcome back to all my new listeners welcome we hope you'll enjoy this episode of the history express podcast
1: so sit back relax and enjoy
2: For generations, British planters grew rich on the toil of their slaves. They were the wealthiest men of their time. But as they began to dream of going home to buy power and status, Africans too were dreaming of freedom. It was the unlikely combination of a moral crusade and an ancient enemy that would finally destroy Britain's slave trade. In Jamaica, the Kumana ritual is a remnant of the secret life of slaves, a reminder of the homes they'd left an ocean away. In the Caribbean, slaves now outnumbered whites 10 to one, but white rule offered no room for rebellion.
3: There's a law which says that a slave raises his hand to hit a white man, he can have his hand amputated. This was the sort of regulation that you, um, you actually had. These laws were now being passed directly by the Jamaican House of Assembly, which was dominated by planters, and generally um, approved in the, in the House of Commons.
2: By 1790, John Pinney, who had acquired 13 estates on Nevis, was packing up the home he'd built, Mount Travis, to return to Bristol. The magic of the gold rush
4: was over. A lot of people were coming back to this country and trying to bring money they'd made in Nevis or in other West Indies back to this country. And he was one of those too.
2: Many plantation owners were leaving the Caribbean, entrusting the management of their estates to overseers. These men were Creoles, white West Indians born in the islands.
5: Overseers they were hard-driving people. They were often cruel to the slaves, although they weren't always. And they sometimes robbed their employers, and they really wanted to get production up and look good on the bottom line, and that they did. And uh, it was done at the cost of the slaves that worked the plantation in many cases.
2: What Pinney neglected to tell his slaves was that he'd sold them to a notorious slave master, Edward Huggins. The Pinney family had
6: trepidation about selling most of their estates to Edward Huggins and his sons because they felt that he was a bit cruel, and they were really worried about what would happen to those estates that they had originally owned. He started as an overseer of a sugar estate when he was just 19 years old. He had no education except what he had here, because he was born in Nevis, he was the first generation here. I think basically, in those days, the the fittest survives, and I think that Edward Huggins was really tough, and uh,
2: he didn't stand for any nonsense. The slaves saw Huggins for what he was. They began to run away, first one by one, then in groups. Huggins had them caught and brought them back to the market square for a public flogging.
7: The first Negro received 365 lashes. Mr. Huggins gave another Negro man 115 lashes and to a woman 110 lashes. The woman who received 291 lashes appeared young and was most cruelly flogged. The flogging took
5: so long that the drivers had to alternate uh... laying the lashes on because it was too much for one man to do in spite of the fact he was quite strong. Two days later the woman died of natural causes according to the coroner and the man was crippled for life and lived only a few years afterwards. Even Huggins' fellow planters in
2: the Nevis Assembly were appalled. It is the opinion of this house
8: that the conduct of Edward Huggins, Esquire, in inflicting punishment on several of his Negroes in the public marketplace of this town, was both cruel and illegal. And that particularly in two cases where 252 lashes and 291 lashes were given, He was guilty of an act of barbarity
2: altogether unprecedented in this island. From England, John Pinney, who had sold his slaves to Huggins, wrote in dismay at their disobedience.
8: I am truly sorry to hear that the Negroes have not behaved as they ought, and you wish. During my long residence in the island, no people could have behaved better in general than they did. We know the disposition of these people. They are apt to try the temper of a new master by not being as correct in their conduct as they ought at first.
4: But I have no doubt, with kindness and attention to their little wants, when they deserve it, you will find them a well-disposed set. It may be that he didn't know what Huggins was like, this is possible, but I think it's unlikely. I think he probably did know And I think he probably, for commercial reasons, sold these slaves to Huggins.
2: Huggins was tried in the island's courthouse by a jury of white plantation
5: owners. He was acquitted. He was hated by his slaves. They tried to poison him nine times and didn't succeed, and he died falling out of his carriage when he was in his 70s a lot of the white planters didn't care much for him either but he was one of them and they had to support him what the planters cared about
2: was keeping slaves as their property chattels
3: if slaves were chattel they could not be persons they could not give evidence in court against whites and this was this was to be a very um important factor because while the law did allow slave masters to be brought to court for various things, like abuse. Since if honestly slaves had witnessed the abuse, he would actually get away with the crime, simply because slave evidence was not accepted.
2: To the slaves, the case sent a clear signal that the planters would never free them willingly. Their path to freedom would be marked by violent rebellion. In England, the absentee landlords were enjoying the fruits of their slaves' labour. They ignored warnings of revolt. Instead, the planters and traders built elegant new homes. England's streets were paved with West Indian gold.
9: They did show off. They drove the most ornate, uh, gilded coaches, they had sort of, if you like, gold threads in their wigs. They, um, they behaved with a certain kind of arrogance because they had money. And so they became um, not only um, despised but also feared. Uh, as one aristocrat put it, they drove up the price of venison <laughs> which, of course, is the noble meat pre- uh, reserved for the aristocracy. But now these people, these social upstarts, could buy venison. They drove up the uh, prices of seats in Parliament because they were able to buy themselves into, into Parliament. So they were despised for buying themselves privilege.
2: The planters wanted to join high society. Instead, they were ridiculed. William Beckford inherited a fortune from his father's Jamaican plantations. He proceeded to spend it at an astonishing rate. He moved to Bath Spa, one of the planter's favorite towns. His fashionable Lansdowne Crescent home still stands. Robert Beckford is a young theologian from Birmingham. He is probably descended from Beckford plantation slaves but he thinks that there's also a slave owner, a white Beckford among his ancestors.
1: My interest in him is regarding my name. My name is Robert Beckford. William Beckford and his father, Alderman Beckford, to put it bluntly, owned my ancestors. Mm -hmm. There were slaves on their plantations in Jamaica. So my interest is in finding out the white side of my family, which is related to the Beckford family.
2: This tower was William Beckford's retreat and treasure house at the top of Lansdowne Hill.
10: We know from writings that Beckford enjoyed coming up to the tower in the mornings. He would ride up before breakfast with his retinue of servants and walk around the tower, take the view, um, and look at, look at his fantastic art collection, which was really the main reason why he built the tower. On the first floor... Wow. ..of the tower rooms, there was this sumptuous drawing room, which it was called the Crimson Drawing Room, which was the room where Beckford did house his collection of, of paintings and furniture, many of which were commissioned especially for the tower. He showed them off in a, in a splendid fashion, grouping them, and that was one of his great um, enjoyments of going up to the tower, is that he would spend hours rearranging them, grouping them as he felt fit. What
1: kind of man surrounds himself with these fabulous items, goes up to the tower every day and rearranges them?
10: I think uh, a man who, who certainly, we know, li- lived in a world of fantasy. Um, he, he inherited this immense wealth at a very young age.
1: But Beckford never made it to Jamaica, yet all of the money that fuelled this wonderful building and these wonderful artefacts inside of it came from the plantations.
10: That's right. Um, Perhaps the plantations for him were, it was a source of money mm-hmm. and he wasn't uh, aware of, of how we look at um, plantation money today. Mm-hmm. Um, that was very, very alien to him. Mm-hmm.
2: William's fortune paid for a hundred masons working day and night for a month to complete the tower.
1: I- is that real gold?
10: It is real gold indeed and uh, it's newly gilded. In Beckford's time, all of this was his garden. And it stretched for about a mile and a half from Lansdowne Crescent, his house, all the way up the hill, and the tower was the sort of culminating feature.
2: For Robert, it's more than a question of aesthetics.
1: I think William Beckford personifies the whole period of slavery People lived well, ate well, were able to cultivate taste in art, in in other artefacts, but yet they didn't pay any attention to where the money came from. That was almost a a distant thing happening somewhere else in the world. And it symbolises, you know, a, a view of the world. You can live well, you can build these fantastic monuments, but you don't have to remember too much about where the money came from. And as a consequence, you don't have to tell the full story.
2: The full story adds insult to injury. William Beckford's father brought the money home and became England's first millionaire. Today, he is honored in London's Guildhall. Robert's black ancestors have no such monument.
1: Alderman Beckford was an MP and also Lord Mayor of London, twice Lord Mayor of London. That's really quite amazing because it shows how slave owners were able to use their monetary power to buy political power. These people were revered and seen as really important people, despite that the money they had was blood money, slave money. His features bear no resemblance to my family. I mean, my family look very West African compared with this man here. It strikes me as somebody who was able to deal with running slave plantations and not really blink an eyelid, and makes me feel very, very remote from the white side of my family.
2: Yet in England in the 1700s, black slaves were seldom more than a step away from their owners. The ultimate status symbol was the household slave, and the height of fashion to be painted with one of your human possessions.
9: The most fortunate of them were uh, black people who worked in the um, in the mansions, in the country houses, because they were fed, they were polished, they were <laughs> they were brushed down, they were they were displayed. They were pets, so therefore you look after your pet. The 18th century conversation pieces, as they were called, frequently had black servants in attendance as symbols of wealth, but also as symbols of servitude.
2: Some black people could flourish in this gilded setting, but others ran away, or were abandoned, to join a growing underclass of sailors, entertainers, peddlers, and thieves, now thronging England's cities.
9: Many were desperately poor. Many of them were beggars. You have rabbit sellers, you have market sellers, you have fairground performers, you have uh, strolling actresses. They did whatever they could. They were highly visible in many areas of English life.
2: By the 1770s, there were up to 15,000 black people in England's cities. Among them was one runaway who was to strike the first blow in the battle for freedom. The abolition struggle began almost by accident sparked by a runaway black servant, one of thousands living in fear of the slave owners.
7: Runaway some time since, a Negro lad about 18 years of age, answers to the name of Starling, now the property of Ralph Cook at the sign of the rising sun in Prince's Street, Bristol. Whoever shall harbour or conceal the said black will be prosecuted as the law directs but any person who will secure him and give notice to his said master, Ralph Cook, shall receive one guinea reward.
2: Once caught, runaways could be returned by force to their masters. The capture of one former slave was witnessed by a pioneer abolitionist, Granville Sharp.
9: Granville Sharp, who had nothing to do with slavery, comes across a black boy in the streets who is badly beaten up and makes a simple inquiry, which is like, you know, what's happened, and gets the story. And when he understands the cruelty endured, the the suffering endured by ordinary black people in this country at the hands of cruel masters, he decides, like any decent Englishman or Christian, to do something about it. And he spends the rest of his life campaigning for the end of the slave trade
2: Sharp managed to prevent the ship's captain from taking the boy, James Somerset, back on board. According to law, he was just a piece of property, but Sharp took his case to court, arguing that Somerset should be a free man. The case went to the country's top judge, Lord Chief Justice Mansfield, a Scottish landowner. Mansfield agonized for seven months, between equally unpalatable alternatives, challenging an Englishman's property rights or allowing slavery on British soil.
7: He
0: gave his judgment to the effect that the air of England was too pure to be breathed by a slave. And he ended up, let the black go free, which may not be politically correct, but it was a splendid... uh, uh, demonstration of his feelings
2: one black person was not only free but family at Mansfield's London home Kenwood his niece's constant companion was Dido Lindsay the daughter of a captured French slave and Mansfield's nephew Sir John Lindsay
0: she used to appear after dinner rather to the astonishment of some of the the great men of the time who went to Kenwood, um, who disapproved of that sort of thing, and not to put too fine a point on it, the Lord Chief Justice got a entirely, I think, um, false reputation as a, as a kind of nigger lover, and um, in fact he he was genuinely a very affectionate and kind great uncle to to Dido.
2: Mansfield never revealed whether Dido's presence influenced his judgment. In any event, black people were still for sale in England.
11: To be sold, a healthy Negro slave named Prince, 17 years of age, measuring 5 feet 10 inches and extremely well grown. Enquire of Joshua Springer in St. Stephen's Lane, who has likewise to sell a four-wheel chaise.
2: The Somerset judgment triggered a wave of agitation against the cruelty of the slave trade. At the center of the campaign led by Sharp were heart-rending testimonies of former slaves. Olauda Equiano published a best-selling record of his life as a slave. He toured the country on behalf of the committee to abolish the trade. His testimony moved the crowds. To kidnap our fellow creatures, however they may differ in complexion, is a crime as unjustifiable as cruel.
11: Can any man be a Christian who asserts that one part of the human race were ordained to be in perpetual bondage to another?
6: Iguiana was actually part of a much larger abolitionist movement. There were many white people, of course, but he was part of an an abolitionist movement that included a number of black figures. You see letters to the newspapers called Sons of Africa, and they would sign letters or present articles or petition people for change. He was part of a large and important black community that was becoming literate and very politically active.
2: Thomas Clarkson became one of abolitionism's moving spirits. As a Cambridge student, Clarkson had written a prize essay condemning slavery. Ending it would become his life's work. Clarkson set off on the first of many fact-finding tours to the great slaving port of Bristol.
12: The vested interests were
9: incredibly powerful. The merchant venturers who ruled the roost in Bristol up until the 1830s were very much against the abolition of the slave trade. And so were many people in Bristol uh, outside the merchant ventures, the people whose jobs depended on servicing the ships, of building the ships, of manufacturing the goods that were exported to Guinea, of processing the stuff that was imported from the Caribbean. Um, it was said that the grass would grow in the docks of Bristol if the slave
2: trade were abolished. So there was tremendous opposition. Clarkson inspected dozens of ships and talked to sailors who had seen the treatment of slaves on the seas and in the Caribbean. The merchant venturers retaliated. It
8: has been found that the African and West Indian trade constitutes three-fifths of the commerce of the port of Bristol, and that if a bill should pass into law,
2: the decline of Bristol must inevitably follow, and the ruin of thousands. While Clarkson was touring the slave ports, Equiano heard of an atrocity that was to seize the nation's attention. In September 1781, the Liverpool ship Zong was carrying 442 slaves from Africa to the West Indies when the captain, Luke Collingwood, lost his way. Soon, water ran short. Slave rations were cut. Collingwood's cargo began to die before his eyes he decided to throw 133 sick and starving slaves overboard. He assured the crew that they would not lose their share of the profits. The insurers would pay up. In court, the lawyers argued that drowning slaves was no different from ditching horses.
12: This starts a stream of protest, and more crucially, it starts people thinking, can you really equate black slaves with horses uh, or other kind of cargo? Uh, And increasingly, people are saying, no, you know, these are our fellow humans, they are not chattels. You cannot treat people as property, as cargo, as, as goods in this way.
2: After this outrage, the cause won an unlikely convert. The Church of St. Mary Woolnoth in the city of London recruited a repentant former slave ship captain, John Newton, as its minister. Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, celebrated the finding of truth and freedom.
12: He talks about his conversion from being a slaver to supporting abolitionism. And he makes these rather stammering but deeply felt sermons on this subject, offering himself as an example of a conversion process which the nation at large must take part in.
11: I have a conviction that the share I formerly had in the trade binds me in conscience to plead for the end to a commerce so iniquitous, so destructive as the African slave trade.
2: The abolitionists knew that their case had to reach many people who could barely read. They used methods that would be recognized today. Their slogan was taken up everywhere.
9: That was what was needed at the time, a simple appeal using one image which was instantly recognizable, and, if you like, a sandbite. Am I not a man and a brother? From towns, from villages, from all social classes, people sometimes who could hardly sign their names would sign their names uh, and present petitions against slavery. And this single issue caught the British imagination. White people were marching and petitioning on behalf of black people.
2: Years before they were allowed to vote, ordinary men, and for the first time women too, were petitioning parliament. Abolitionist propaganda hammered home the inhumanity of the passage across the Atlantic. Clarkson revealed that each slave was forced into a space smaller than a coffin for the entire six-week journey. This shocked people who would not have subjected their animals to such treatment. Clarkson's poster of a Liverpool slave ship, the Brooks, carrying 600 slaves, went up across the nation. The campaigners believed that it would only be a matter of time before Parliament took its lead from the people and abolished the slave trade. To lead the political campaign, Clarkson had recruited a respected, independent member of Parliament, William Wilberforce.
11: They both realised they couldn't manage without each other. Wilberforce, the first-class orator, the the man who had influence, the man who had money, the man who was accepted by the public as being immensely popular. And Wilberforce knew that he couldn't cope without the facts in front of him. And there was a quote about him needing an intellectual walking stick and that was Thomas Clarkson.
2: But for all his popularity, Wilberforce wasn't going to have an easy ride. Ranged against him were the most important political figures of the day, from the king downwards.
4: It's difficult for us to imagine, isn't it, that anybody could opposed this thing at that time. Of course, there were the great uh, trading ports, Liverpool and Bristol, whose prosperity depended entirely on the trade, and they had their members of parliament. But apart from that, the West Indian sugar uh, planters had their own representatives, agents in this country. I think it's estimated they had more than 50 uh, tied members in the House of Commons who would support their case. Well, 50 is quite a good thing when you're counting for votes.
2: The pro-slavery MPs weren't popular, but they didn't need to be. As long as influence could be bought, the slave trade was safe in establishment hands.
5: The
13: West India interest and the mercantile interests associated with them put up a long and one would have to say relatively successful uh, rearguard defence of slavery and the slave trade, which became hugely unpopular because um, it became a symbol, really, of what was called at the end of the 18th century old corruption of an unreformed a political system where people with money could simply buy influence and power.
2: Today, a Liverpool street bears the name of one of the city's biggest slave-trading families. The Taltons personified the old corruption. Thomas Talton's family firm fitted out dozens of slave ships, and his grandsons became MPs principally to defend the slave trade. The Taltons could reach places and exercise influence that the abolitionists could only dream of.
14: This is a letter from John Tarleton, the MP, dated the 5th of February, 1788. Dear Clayton, Mr. Pitt on Saturday morning sent for me into Downing Street, where I remained from 21 past 11 till three o'clock in the afternoon. And then the letter goes on to say, I expatiated on the value of the imports from Africa and the West Indies and North America to Great Britain.
7: And that should Mr. Wilberforce's plan for the prohibition of a further importation of Negroes into our islands take place, the consequences would be total ruin and impending destruction.
2: John's brother, Benaster, abandoned reasoned argument for abuse of abolitionists. He called them the junta of sectarians, sophists, enthusiasts and fanatics,
8: out to destroy a trade worth £800,000 a year and employing 5,000 seamen.
14: I don't actually think that uh, there is much point in uh, looking back and saying my family were dreadful or anything like that. I I think that they were doing what everybody uh, was doing at the time and it was not considered to be an awful thing.
2: Wilberforce introduced a bill to end the slave trade almost every year from 1788, each time he failed.
4: 96 was quite a landmark where he really hoped to have his bill going, but then they were defeated by a very popular opera, which was on at the time, uh, on the third reading and all his supporters were away at the opera and they didn't turn up in time and he lost it at the third reading. It's an absolute terrible thing. So this was always likely to happen when whips didn't exist and anyhow, he was only a private member. So there were always these adverse votes and disappointments.
2: The noble cause seemed likely to founder, but astonishingly, the first crack in the wall of resistance came from the planters themselves. In the Caribbean, the relentless work and cruelty meant that for every hundred slaves, only one child was born each year. The labor force was maintained by continuously importing slaves from Africa. But by 1800, planters had grasped that allowing slaves to marry and live in easier conditions would produce new slaves at no extra cost. Some offered incentives. In Barbados, six shillings and threepence per child. As the planters' resistance weakened, the abolitionists were winning new converts in Britain's ports. Thomas Clarkson found that the slave voyages were as dangerous for the crew as for the slaves. He used the fact ruthlessly.
11: One of the arguments for the slave trade was that it trained sailors ready for the British Navy. Well, Clarkson added it up, and um, of all the sailors that were on the slave trade that were gathered each year, about half of them failed to return home. And this was a a key fact to Wilberforce, which he was able to put before Parliament.
2: The political establishment remained reluctant to abandon slavery. They valued Africans not just as plantation labor, but as soldiers. Black men had boasted the West Indian regiments for decades. At the height of the abolition debate, the king's generals were still desperately buying slaves. It is
8: universally admitted that the black force in the West Indies should be augmented as much as possible with a view to lessen the consumption of the European troops. The best mode of effecting this augmentation would be to take every advantage of the time allowed before the act takes effect and enter into a contract with the merchants at Liverpool to furnish two to 4,000 slaves of the tribes from the Gold Coast at Barbados, from whence they could be distributed as the officer commanding should direct. Half, or certainly one third of this number, might be taken at the age of 16. Well made and healthy lads.
2: By the early 1800s, Britain was fighting a great war against the French in Europe and the Caribbean. The politicians, searching for a way to unite the nation, put on the mantle of moral superiority. Napoleon permitted slavery in French colonies, so Britain would abandon it.
12: This is a way of, if you like, rebranding Britain in an advantageous way. The British establishment can stand up in 1807 when they abolish Britain's participation in the slave trade and say, it distinguishes us against the French whom we are fighting. They have reintroduced slavery. We, the British, are pulling out of the slave trade. So it's, if you wanted to be cynical, you could say, that this is a cause which has an appeal not just to reformers but to the establishment, to orthodox patriots who can see it as one more proof of Britain as the supreme land of liberty. In
2: 1807, a weary Wilberforce finally gained his victory. The establishment U-turn gave the abolitionists the votes they needed to outlaw the slave trade.
4: Great speeches were made by the politicians and then they all made tributes to him and he sat, so he said, with his uh, head between his hands, tears pouring from his eyes. It was the greatest moment in his life.
2: Today, the abolition of the slave trade is regarded as a parliamentary triumph for Wilberforce, now commemorated in Westminster Abbey. But abolition was the work of many hands. It needed the contributions of Granville Sharp, Olaudah Equiano, and a host of others guided by the tactical genius of Thomas Clarkson.
9: Slavery had its Oscar Schindlers. Heroic in a quiet sense, you know, they were just moved by just a sense of dignity and an outrage that in their own country, which which values liberty and freedom, and and, uh, freedom of the body from indiscriminate abuse, that this should be happening to black people. Whether they were black or not, it didn't matter, but they happened to be black. So a simple moral outrage uh, and, uh, and, and a courage to take on the establishment and to win.
2: The Christian reformers' victory had only halted the trade. For the hundreds of thousands still enslaved in the Caribbean, freedom would only come after violent rebellion. The slave trade was abolished in 1807. In Africa, the victory was greeted with dismay. On the coast, an entire economy had been built up around the slave forts. Now they were abandoned. Abolition cut local traders' business by half.
15: It presented a dilemma to the local people. If the trade was suddenly stopped, then what would be their livelihood? And so, in a way, the local Africans, they tended to oppose the abolition of the slave trade because that was their livelihood.
2: Worse still, the British Navy was told to intercept slaving voyages run by British ships to plantations in America, Brazil, and Cuba. the slave-trading kings were enraged.
15: By the 1820s and the 1830s, the Africans along the coast had to adjust to a new situation, and that is trading in what is called legitimate goods.
2: (laughs) In the Caribbean, Africans were still enslaved. They felt cheated of their freedom. Surprisingly, it was religion that would fan the flames of their rebellion. St. Anne's Anglican Church on the island of St. Kitts. Two centuries ago, the only black faces here would have been outside waiting for their masters to finish worship. This was the church of the owners and they wanted it kept that way. Slaves had their own churches and preachers, often slaves themselves, teaching that all were equal in the sight of God. These men and their congregations were to be the core of slave resistance.
3: They were very courageous in trying to, to preach because most slaveholders initially were opposed to teaching Christianity. The notion was that teaching slaves Christianity might lead them to think, in terms of freedom, if they begin to think of themselves as people. Slaves had ears, and they would hear this debates, the discussions going on on the questions of abolition. There are slaves in taverns, there are slaves in the households, and they are all hearing this, and the way they interpreted it that the king wanted to free them, but the planters were actually stopping it. And I believe that this is one of the things which um, ensured that we had more slaves, more slave revolts becoming more intense.
2: Slaves had been running away from the start. Some managed to set up rebel settlements. rebellions were put down by the superior force of the colonial militias. But in the end, it was slave revolt that forced both planters and politicians into conceding complete freedom. In Jamaica, Robert Beckford is searching for the part his ancestors played in the slave revolts. Jamaica's national hero, Sam Sharp, began the island's most momentous uprising, planned on a Beckford plantation. Sharp was an unlikely rebel, a trusted slave, literate, numerate, and a Baptist minister. Roberts arranged to meet Sharp's spiritual successor in the rebel leader's own church.
1: What kind of risks were the slaves taken by siding with Sharp?
15: Well, <laughs> Lots of risks, just by being off their plantation at wrong hours, they were running a certain risk. But rebellion, uh, or anything that looked like rebellion, was harshly put down.
2: In December 1831, Sharp used his weekly prayer meetings to urge the slaves to go on strike. But the moderate action he planned soon spiraled out of control. Groups of slaves broke curfew and set fire to whole plantations.
15: They began to burn estates over a wide area. One beacon on that hill got its answer on another hill and and so on.
2: The revolt was doomed. 14 planters were killed but hundreds of slaves died in the militia's reprisals.
15: They were ill-equipped to fight a war. Many of them did not know how to use firearms. Sharp decided that if he were the main cause, then maybe he could stop the killing by giving himself up.
2: Sharp was tried as a ringleader. A planter's court found him guilty he was sentenced to be hanged in the square which now bears his name.
15: He did not deny that he had been involved. He simply, uh, on the gallows, argued that he reckoned he had a right to be free.
2: 580 slaves were executed. Hundreds more were brutally punished. The floggings went on for days and were carefully recorded. Among the lists of punished slaves, Robert Beckford finds the name the person he's been searching for.
1: This is absolutely mind-blowing for me. It tells me there were people from the Beckford plantation involved in this revolution. And for me, as a Robert Beckford living today, it affirms my identity. It's one thing that makes the Beckford name worthwhile. I feel a real connection between that Robert Beckford and me as Robert Beckford. It's almost as if this is the discovery that I wanted to make in terms of grounding my identity in something concrete. And here I can see a black Beckford that I can identify with.
2: News of Sharpe's revolt and its repression caused consternation in London.
15: I think it is not, not claiming too much to say that Sam Sharpe's rebellion was the trigger that sort of brought things to a head. Although there was disquiet in the British um, society and there were many in England who had been agitating against it. But this rebellion and the kind of brutality with which it was put down, I I think it stirred the conscience of people of conscience.
2: Less than two years after the rebellion, Robert's ancestors would have crowded outside Jamaica's National Assembly to hear the proclamation. It was a total victory for the rebels. All slaves were to be freed by the 1st of August, 1838. Slaves gathered in the streets to celebrate but even those with the most benevolent of masters soon saw that liberty carried a high price. The Codrington plantations had covered large areas of Barbados and Antigua for 200 years. Their slaves were now free, but their food and lodgings were not.
6: It was a huge cultural change, which no one had thought about. You, before, never had to look for a job, and you never had Mm. for 200 years. You didn't know how to go about marketing yourself, where to go. You probably could only do one skill. You hadn't got other skills. Mm. Uh, and you... You had freedom, which is what everybody wanted. But you didn't have but the land. What? Yeah. No income, no land, mm. no no food, scarce. Um, no tourism. You see, the plantations so used to make all their own food, you know, and bring it in and sort things and what have you. So everybody had enough to eat. One slave who was called George Codrington rights to ask for more money because he says he's got eight children and he now has to pay the doctors bills for them because now he's a free man he doesn't get free doctors and and free and not looked after He has to house himself and he has to clothe himself and feed himself of course when before he bought his freedom he got all that
2: and I think this was the big change the slaves had won freedom but precious little else not so their masters Robert Beckford is back in England. He's about to discover the sting in the tale of emancipation. Whilst the slaves were simply left to fend for themselves, their owners won a huge government windfall. 20 million then, about one billion pounds today. In the library of the city of London, he's making a final reckoning with the family who owned his ancestors. One of many planters who shared the compensation.
1: From my calculations, roughly £20,000 were paid in compensation to William Beckford and members of his family just for the slaves in Jamaica. Slave owners got £20 million in old money in the 1830s for compensation for the, lack, lack, you know, for the loss of slaves. The slaves received absolutely nothing, Jack. And they had to go and eke out a living after slavery.
2: The end of slavery should have been a moment of liberation for black slaves. In fact, it confirmed for generations to come the ascendancy of their white masters. In the end,
13: the emancipation law was a very moderate law in the sense that it compensated not the slaves who had done so much unpaid labor, for years and years, and who'd built up the wealth of Britain. The people who got the compensation were actually the former slave owners, and they got a huge sum of money in compensation.
2: In 1838, slavery ended in British colonies, but over half a million former slaves were provided with nothing to equip them for a fresh start. Some freed slaves took ship once again, But unlike their ancestors, they went willingly, bound for a new horizon. They were to transform Britain in a way that is only now being understood.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Express podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please look in the show description notes for a link that will allow you to help support the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, have a great day.